0: Hey there, welcome to the RIM Church podcast. We're so glad you found us. The RIM Church is based in San Antonio, Texas, and we believe in loving Jesus, building family, and changing the world. Wherever you find yourself today, we trust that it is not by accident that you're listening to this message, and we believe that God has something to speak to you right where you are. For more information on what we're all about, go ahead and visit us at therim.church or follow us on Instagram and Facebook. We hope you enjoy the message.
1: Well, if you still have your Bibles out, uh, I want you to kind of zoom in on pages 2 and 3. As Austin said, we're continuing the sermon series uh, called Genesis, the, the Bigger Story. And today, this message, maybe more than any other so far in this series, is just insanely close to my heart. If I'm honest with you, this, this, these verses are what made me want to step into Genesis. And uh, this is my journal entry. It's been a big part of my road to healing over the course of even the last eight months. And so, man, I hope that God uses it to speak to you. It's like the last eight months, like crammed into 40 minutes. So we'll see how this goes. And, uh, and like Austin said in Genesis, it's the theme and the whole, if I could sum it up in one sentence, is that, that there's a God who takes this unlivable chaos of our world and creates a space of order and beauty so that life can flourish and so that we can enjoy him. And when we started the, at the very beginning of this series, we talked about um, this, these chiasms, okay? Or this chiasmic poetry. Uh, or literary origami is uh, one of the phrases that we, we use to talk about it. And this is, a, like the best way to describe this, that chiasmic poetry is a lot like a road map Um, that the authors put inside of the scripture that's kind of like a treasure map to show us where they've hidden buried treasure okay I'm gonna be real quick okay because if you didn't really grow up in church you're like me immediately your alarms go off and you're like wait a second is this like numerology where you like add these numbers then you divide some such number, and all of a sudden you know when Jesus comes back this is not like that at all that every Old Testament scholar will say, yes, this is true. It was written in a poetic form to be able to spotlight certain things. It's the brilliance of the Eastern mind and authors, okay? So we talked about how that these most the two most common forms of this. And it's like this rhythm of A, B, C, D, or maybe D, C, B, A. And then, or it could be opposite where it mirrors. A, B, C, D, A, B, C, D, okay? So... Here in this story, I just want to spotlight from the beginning that there's this buried treasure. There's this chiasmic poem that we're about to step into. So let me show it to you really quick. In the narrative, what we have here is we have bookends. That This story, it starts with Adam being alone in the garden. And it's going to end with him being alone, banished from the garden. Okay? We see that we have Adam naming woman, Ishah. We talked about that uh, last week, I believe. Uh, and then we've got him naming her Eve. We've got the introduction of this serpent, okay? And then we've got the curse of the serpent. You following? Okay, so it kind of has this. This is the ABCD, DCBA, bookend, treasures right in the middle. And what do we find in the center of the chiasm? It is verse 7. And it says this. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked, naked. Genesis three seventeen. that ends up being the phrase at the center of the poem, which if we're really honest, is a really odd little treasure. I mean, this whole theme of this passage that we just read is a theme of nakedness, and it's repeated over and over throughout the story, and can we just be honest, it's weird. And it's kind of awkward. Am I right? Like, you're tracking with that. Like, this is weird. Now, fun fact. I don't know if you know this. uh, If you do just a quick Google search, uh, pretty instantly it will reveal to you the most common dreams that people have. Or maybe we'll just put it this way, the most common nightmares. Any guesses to, like, maybe the top three? Okay, yeah, I kind of foreshadowed that. Nakedness, yeah, yeah. Losing your teeth. Yes, it's a big one. What other one? Running slow. slow. Like somebody's chasing you running slow. I have that one pretty often. Okay. Any other ones? (laughs) Falling. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So um, that one didn't make the top three falling. Um, At least the selective websites that I looked at left that out. Um, And I needed this to support my facts. So... um, (laughs) The, one of the most common ones, surprisingly, this is worldwide, is dreams about snakes. Okay, mm-hmm. yeah, which I think this goes all the way back to the garden. Uh, we'll talk about that next week. Um, you nailed it. Uh, teeth falling out. This is a big one. And then, as you mentioned, uh, dreams about being naked. Okay? And you, you guys, have y'all had this dream before? Just to show of hands. You've had that dream before? Okay, not as many as I thought. Okay, uh, well this for me is like waking up in my high school classroom, the bell just rang and you look down and you realize that for some reason, for whatever reason, you didn't get fully dressed this morning, you're in a public place and you have no pants, okay? Now dream experts say that in most cases dreams about being naked reveal feelings of vulnerability, embarrassment, insecurity, or shame. Very interesting. So I want you to see this. In this story, we know that the theme is nakedness. But the question is, what is that all about? What's going on here? Because like I said, it's weird. Well, I want to rewind just a bit, just in case maybe you haven't been tracking along with us. Genesis 1 and 2, it begins with God I mean, creating something really good, God's good creation. And the Bible is off to a wonderful start. God creates a beautiful world marked by abundance and beauty and diversity and delight. And God lovingly and generously shares this world with humanity, creating Adam and Eve to be the royal priest of the garden, creating and cultivating sacred space for humanity to experience and enjoy the beauty of God. So far, so good. And the author of Genesis continues to elaborate on the wholeness and purity and freedom experienced in the garden between the man and woman. And in one of the most dazzling verses in all of Scripture, it reads, verse 25 of chapter 2, both the man and his wife were naked, yet felt no shame. What does that even mean? Well, I believe. It's pointing to the fact that Adam and Eve are completely transparent. They are fully human. There's no hiding. They're fully exposed. And all of their insecurities and blemishes are on full display. And yet, they feel zero embarrassment and zero shame. I mean, everything here was right with God. It's right with each other. It's right within self And here we have humanity living in the greatest of joy and freedom. Their love for each other is free from body shaming, free from comparison, free from objectification. There's a fundamental unity between God with others and with their own bodies. And here's what I think the author is trying to communicate. That humanity is wired to get our worth our value, our understanding, our purpose, and our security all from God. And this relationship in the garden is so strong and God's love is so pure that Adam and Eve felt no insecurity at all. So much so that they walked around naked and didn't even care that they were naked. Nakedness symbolized their true and authentic selves. They were who they were And they were okay with it. There was nothing to hide. I want you to see this. That their relationship with God was good. was secure. Which led to the relationships with each other being good. Which led to security and confidence in the way they saw themselves. Notice the order. It starts with God. Then it leans into others. And then upon themselves. Now, you know how this story goes. We just read it. Humanity doesn't trust God. They choose not to trust the story and they eat of the tree of knowing good and bad. Now I want you to think about this, okay? Go with me here. What was the first thing that happened after Adam and Eve ate from the tree? Oh wait, pause, pause, pause. Don't think about it that. Way. Actually, think about it this way. What would you anticipate happening if you didn't know how it ends? all of a sudden, Adam and Eve reach for this tree that they're not supposed to, the tree of knowing good and evil, and they take a bite of it. What do you anticipate or expect to happen? They would die. Yeah, maybe that's good. What else? Just from the, the name of the tree. Think about it. Double click on it. They're eating from a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Maybe start judging. They have, all, like, all of a sudden, they become all-knowing. They gain some wisdom, some clarity. They know algebra. All of a sudden, maybe they can decipher between moral ethics. Like, there's 10 people on a lifeboat, and one gets, you know, they have to only survive one. Like, which one do you pick? Like, like you, that, that, That's kind of like how I would picture this. I would not expect what happens here. That's not what the story says. It says that the first thing... That they noticed was that they were naked. It says that they like what, What's going on here? Why? Why all of this? This naked and it keeps getting brought up, and it's going to continue to get brought up. What's going on here? Well, like we said, Adam and Eve—they don't trust the story. They don't trust God. And in the moment that that relationship was broken, the moment that they distrust, they knew it instantly. All of their worth, all their security that came from God, gone. Their mistrust led to insecurity and shame. Their eyes shifted from being on Jesus to now being on themselves. And they become conscious of self or self-conscious. Now watch this. This also fractures the relationship that they have with each other. It leads them to isolate themselves, to cover themselves from one another. It also led to a feeling of disconnection from God that led them to running from God. They turn their eyes upon themselves. They realize they're naked. They become self-conscious. And for the first time, human beings turn their focus away from God, turn it upon themselves, and they feel disconnection and they feel shame. They feel the need to cover up to start to hide parts of themselves. And in an instant, shame comes crashing into the human heart like a freight train. Shame is described this way. It's to believe that one's being is flawed or that one is defective. Once shame connects to one's identity, it becomes toxic, And it becomes dehumanizing. And toxic shame is so unbearable for the human experience that it forces us to cover up. We see this with Adam and Eve. It forces us to hide, to wear masks, or even create a false self. And the result is a lifetime of cover up and secrecy. Georgie, who's on staff as our executive director, uh, came across this quote this week and texted it to me. She said, I was just thinking about you, and I'd love to share this with you. Uh, John Lynch, in his book, The Cure, he says it this way. He said, no one told me this two-faced life or false self would severely stunt my growth or that it would break my heart. No no matter how many titles or accolades I accumulate, I remained wounded and immature, long on success, but short on dreams and substance. I admire people who live the true face, face life, but my loss of hope forces me to scramble for safety from behind a mask. The cost is horrific. He goes on and says this, that no one told me. That when I wear a mask, only my mask receives love. We can gain admiration and respect from behind a mask. We can even this intimidate. But as long as we're behind a mask, any mask, we will not be able to receive love. Then, in our desperation to be loved, we'll rush to fashion more masks, hoping the next will give us what we're longing for, to be known, accepted, Trusted and loved. In the 2012 uh, Christopher Nolan uh, version of Batman and Dark Knight Rises, I don't know if you guys saw this movie, Uh, there is a very powerful scene in the movie where Bruce Wayne goes through this like masked ball, okay? And there's a moment where he's dancing with Catwoman, uh, Selena. And she asks him this question. She, she notices, like, you're the only one not wearing a mask. And so she says this. She says, who are you pretending to be? And he replies, Bruce Wayne, eccentric billionaire. Now, the reason that this is such a big deal is that director Christopher Nolan wanted to communicate in this scene that because of the childhood dra- uh, trauma and the deep-seated shame that Bruce feels and has been carrying, that he actually considers Batman, his false self, his true identity, and Bruce Wayne is actually the disguise that he wears out in public. So just like everybody else at the ball, he's wearing a mask. It just wasn't that obvious. In his book, The Psychology of Shame, Clinical psychologist and author Gershon Kaufman, he communicates that secrets and hiding are the basic cause of suffering for every single one of us. What's this. This is crazy. He says this. He says shame is the source of many complex and disturbing inner states. Depression, alienation, self-doubt, Isolating, loneliness, paranoid, schizo- like schizoid phenomenon, like compulsive disorders, splitting of the self, perfectionism, a deep, deep sense of inferiority, inacquacy, or failure, the so-called borderline conditions and disorders of narcissism. He's saying all of that at the core is shame. It's a shame that we carry. Brene Brown, American research on topics like shame and vulnerability, she says it this way. That shame is in a wide range of mental and public health issues, including self-esteem issues, depression, addiction, eating disorders, bullying, suicide, family violence, and sexual assault. That all of those, if you trace it to its root issue, is toxic shame. Shame is at the center of political violence, wars, criminality, So we see now why when Adam and Eve's eyes are open and shame comes crashing in like this is a big deal and it affects every single one of us in this room. And I want you to think about how they respond, like how do they respond? We see it in verse 7. The eyes of both of them were open. They knew they were naked, so what do they do? They sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Fig leaves. So random. But yet, it was the world's first attempt to control shame. The first mask that we ever put on. And since that day, we've never managed to stop feeling the need to do the exact same. Adam and Eve reached for fig leaves and the whole world became a fashion show. Now today, we're way more sophisticated than they are. And we have more designer fig leaves. We hide behind our titles, professor, actor, entrepreneur, CEO, Mother, artist, the Genesis story calls this disastrous exchange of security with God for shame as fig leaves, and we've been doing the same thing ever since. I wonder today, if just to yourself, if you were so honest, what are the fig leaves that you wear? What is it that you reach for to somehow hide the shame? For me, real talk, is, uh, I mean, I, (laughs) I became a professional magician and then became a pastor, thinking that these leaves would somehow hide the shame and that if I performed well enough, maybe you would love the mask that i was wearing just real talk what's your fig leaves after this god comes looking for his walking buddies in the cool of the day and he can't find them and so he says where are you and adam responds with well i hid because i was naked And once again, out of all the things that he could have highlighted, why focus on the nakedness? Then all the things that God could have said here. I mean, He could have talked about the tree and focus on that, but instead his words are, who told you that you were naked? It's just repeated over and over again. And I want you to look at verse 8. The man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. A couple of weeks ago, my daughter Tilly, who's three, was in the bathroom and she's um, brushing her teeth, getting ready, and something accidentally gets knocked off the counter in the, in the, the other room. And so immediately just, hey, she said, Tilly, are you okay? And I kind of walk into the bathroom and she just knocked over a container like completely by accident, but I don't see her immediately um, because she's hiding behind the shower curtain. Immediately embarrassed. Immediately shame sets in. How quickly shame and hiding enter into their little stories. And God comes to them and he asks a question. Where are you? And it's weird. Like does God not, does he not know where they're at? Is he confused? They ask, where where are you? Now there, I don't, I'm not going to go into this too much, but there's two really expressions of even the word where in Hebrew. And one is like, hey, I don't know where this is. Like, uh, my keys, where are they? I can't find them. I don't know where I put them. The other idea is like, hey, I placed my keys right here. I know I left them here. Where are they? They're not, they're not where they're supposed to be. And that, that's the phrasing that God uses when he comes into the garden. Adam, Eve, you're not where you're supposed to be. You're supposed to be walking with me in the garden. Adam, you're supposed to be by my side. You're not where you're supposed to be. Where are you? God's question is just this beautiful invitation into intimacy. And Adam's response is, Well, I, well, I hid because I was naked. And God's question to him is brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. God says, Who told you you were naked? Like, I love that question because they were naked the whole time. And it wasn't a problem. It wasn't a big deal. And I think that you and I, we have this tendency to project onto God some type of tone to his question. As though he's really mad and he's disappointed and he's coming after Adam and Eve. But I love this question because it shows the heart of God. And it shows that the heart of God is broken. Who told you? Adam, who told you 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 were naked? I think God's question is actually, what voices have you been listening to, Adam? Who lied to you? Adam, I created you naked. I told you that you were good and beautiful and lovely. Now all of a sudden, you're ashamed of the very way that I created you. What other voices are you listening to, Adam? I think you and I, we walk around with so much shame of who we are, and I wonder if God asks us the question today, why, why are you ashamed of the very way I created you? Who told you that you were naked? Why is being completely secure in who I've created you to be all of a sudden a bad thing? What other voices have you been listening to? And the invitation for us is not to listen to the other voices that tell us to be ashamed of the person that we are. Because the person we are is the person that God created, he made, in his image, and he loves, and he values, and he accepts, and he invites us just to rest in that. He invites us back to Genesis 1, back to Sabbath rest. He invites us to trust the story, to trust him. Don't listen to any other voices. What's also interesting is they realized they were naked and they sew these fig leaves together and they covered themselves and yet they were still ashamed. They're still ashamed. Think about this. I love that God doesn't respond to them and their nakedness by trying to fix their misconception. Like he could have just been like, no, guys... Really, like, nakedness is totally cool. It's fine. Like, don't worry about it. But instead, he meets them in their shame, and he sews them clothes. Like, I love that. He exchanges their leaves for leather. That's amazing. I love the fact that God hears our shame. He sees our shame And in love, he graciously gives us comfort. Even though I think in reality they don't even need it, yet he met them and made them close. God covers them. How? How does he cover them? With leather. What does that mean? It means that something had to die. It's the first thing in the story that dies. Blood is shed so that they could be covered. And if you've been around us at all, you're like, wait a second. That sounds like huge foreshadowing. You would be right. Verse 21, it tells us that the Lord God made clothing from skins for the man and his wife. and He clothed them. The beauty of this is that this is not the end of the story. That there is hope. In power and love, God can form us deeply back into the way that Jesus created us. In him, watch this, our bondage is overcome. Our wounds don't have the last word. Christ is victorious. In the opening pages of the Bible that we just look at, we see the tragic effects of sin and shame. After eating from the the tree that God said not to, Adam and Eve hid themselves in a tree or around a tree, naked, conquered by shame. And this has been the story of humanity throughout the ages. But it needs not end there. In Jesus, a new humanity is offered. One not shackled by the prison of sin and shame, but liberated into the fullness and freedom of God's love. In the singular act involving that tree in the Garden of Eden, the world was sent into a dangerous tailspin of sin and shame. But then, Jesus comes into the scene, and in an act of obedience, forever changed the trajectory of the world. Jesus, the perfect Lamb of God, was willing to die so that His bloodshed could cover us just like the bloodshed in the garden could cover us. Yes, Adam and Eve hid behind a tree naked and conquered by shame, but Jesus hangs on a tree naked in order to conquer shame. And this is the good news of the gospel. In Jesus, shame doesn't have to have the last word in your life. We get to live in freedom that comes in his name. Romans 8 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I'll kind of end with this. Uh, This week I got to spend uh, some time in Atlanta and just, man, doing some really cool like, like soul counseling, if you will, And one of the themes that kind of got just brought up um, is just like I started reminiscing on a story that I haven't really thought too much about. But when I was a kid, uh, man, shame honestly was just kind of passed down from my grandparents to my parents then to me. And I'll just kind of just make this side note just to all of just all of us. It doesn't matter. The shame that you carry um, was, was probably handed to you by someone And I will lovingly encourage you that if you don't let God transform that shame, you will transfer it to your kids. It'll just be handed on. That your fig leaves will just get slightly more improved upon, but will be handed on to your kids. That will be your inheritance. And so by the grace of God, man, I'm, these last eight months doing just deep work because I go, I don't want Tilly and Lyndon to carry my shame. I want it to die with me. And so we're, we're kind of processing, and I remember just as a kid uh, feeling just the weight of just shame and insecurity and not feeling loved and just wondering even, like, do I belong to this family. And so one of the things that I would do is I would literally run outside and I would climb up this really tall tree and I would just hide like where I couldn't be seen. And I'd wait up there for like hours just looking down and see if anybody, would anybody come out and try to find me? Would anybody call my name? Did anybody even notice I was gone? Did anybody even care? Just hiding in a tree. And this became like a major milestone of my childhood. It's like a very vivid memory. And here's what's interesting. As I got older and then I got married, uh, well, obviously I stopped maybe climbing trees. At least so I thought. And then I realized that the trees have just gotten a bit more sophisticated. And now they're emotional trees. And so all of a sudden there's conflict in my family. And I just, instead of running out the door or fighting, I just freeze And what I'm doing is I'm emotionally climbing up a tree and hiding, looking at my wife going, hey, do you see me? Will you come after me? And shame sends us back into being that that little child again, running and hiding, going, does anybody care? Does anybody see me? Is anybody proud of me? Does anybody love me? Or is it just me? And so I'm I'm sharing this, I'm processing, and I'm, I'm going through the steps of healing. And so at one point, A counselor looks at me, we're outside in Monroe, Georgia, and he just goes, Drew, before we leave today, I think you need to let God redeem that shame. I was like, what do you mean? He's like, I think you should climb one of these trees, and you should speak, let God speak a better word over you, and realize that God wants to redeem the shame for two things. For one, to, to be reminded that, they, that sometimes climbing up a tree can be fun and, and that God gives you higher vision when you climb up to a tree. And maybe God has allowed you to walk this road so that you can come up to other people that have climbed up in a tree and go, hey, I see you. Hey, come down. It's safe. So I did it. I climbed a tree. Uh, <laughs> I'm up at the top. Like, If you can't see me, there I am. Uh, and I took a selfie because you have to do that. Um, and I was just reminded, even this morning, of just Luke 19 where Zacchaeus climbs up this tree. And I love it. There's a lot of different speculations. Like, oh, it's going to be short. He wanted to be able to see Jesus. And a lot of people think that it probably had to do with his sense of shame. And it was maybe the safest place for him to see Jesus. And I love Jesus' response. As he approaches the tree. Zacchaeus, like, yes, I see you. I see you up there. I don't, I don't know if anybody else noticed, but I noticed. And the invitation is to come down. Because today, I'm meeting at your house. So, church, how do we walk? in this freedom that Christ paid for. I think we have to focus on being honest with who we are. Start, in by taking off some of these fig leaves and coming out from hiding. Maybe it's climbing down whatever tree that you find yourself hiding in. And as maybe as... Somebody that's a half a step ahead of you. I'm learning that it's safe. And I'm learning that I would much rather you love the real broken me than the performance that I put on display for you. I think, until we do this, we'll never fully experience all that God is inviting us into. Both with himself and with each other. I think why that's why so many of us hate the idea of church. If you could sum it up, it's real talk. Like, what is the idea of a church? Well, it's just like programmed meeting for an hour and 15 minutes where everybody puts on their best fig leaves and just performs for each other I want no part of it Eh, I'm over it and so I want to invite you into the deeper waters I want to invite you to come down from the tree and this is what I want to do I want to give you 120 seconds church for you just to ask these two simple questions. It's always centered around what's God speaking to you and what are you gonna do about it? But I just wanna add a little bit, maybe, maybe today you'd be so brave to ask these two questions. Where are you hiding? What's your tree? Your fig leaves? And then the brave question Of what would it be like to be honest starting with yourself and then maybe with others. It's really strange that when someone does work up the courage to be brave enough to come down the tree that everyone else notices and goes, wow, that's Incredibly brave of you. And if you have the courage to do that, maybe I can. But it typically starts with someone going, I'll take my fig leaves off first. So, church, this is your time between you and God. You do whatever you want with it. Would you wrestle with these two questions? Do the work. Don't just bypass it or avoid it. That fear, that insecurity the shame that you feel from even looking at these questions. Don't let the enemy have the last word on your story.
0: Thanks so much for listening. We hope that today's message resonated with you. It's our hope that you wouldn't be merely inspired, but that you would actually be transformed by something you heard today. At the Rim Church, we always ask two questions when processing God's word. What is God saying to you? What are you going to do about it? We encourage you to take a moment, reflect, and then to share with a friend or send us a message. We'd love to hear what God is teaching you and how we can help you take your next step in obedience. Until we meet again, we love you, church.